There's strong historical and anthropological evidence that dogs came across the Bering Land Bridge at the very north end of the Pacific Ocean as people migrated, beginning 11,000 years ago, from Siberia to Alaska. The dogs that also migrated worked hard to maintain their keep and weren't pets. They chased and ran down polar bears and located seals hiding beneath the bearing ice in the winter. One of the early dog professionals in Alaska was Harry Karstens, who later became the first superintendent of Mount McKinley National Park. As a young man, he pioneered a dog sled route from Fairbanks, Alaska to Valdez, Alaska, and hauled mail to the Katishna Mining District. Karsten's sled and dogs were typical of those used in the Alaska interior in the early 1900s. The sleds were built from native birch and were durable and flexible. A guide pole was lashed to the front of the sled for the driver to help guide as he skied or snowshoed directly behind the dogs. The dogs were often hitched in single file for long cross-country travel. Now, at Denali National Park in central Alaska, there's a breeding, training, and leadership program for sled dogs. Near the kennels is a large sign quoting Harry Karstens, which says, a man driving a dog team is the biggest dog himself. Amid the noise and the chatter of the dogs near their kennels, at Denali National Park, I spoke with Gary Coy, who in 1996 was the project director, and I asked him to explain what that sign means and to tell us about his work. Harry Karstens was the first superintendent of Denali, well, then McKinley National Park. He got his start, he came up to Alaska in the gold rush and uh, became a uh, expert dog musher running freight and mail. He also was a part of the first expedition to climb Mount McKinley using dog teams up to the 11,000 foot mark on the Muldrow Glacier to climb Mount McKinley. What year would this have been in? I believe 1917. It could have been 1913. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I think 1917. No, excuse me, 1913. The dog, the person in charge is really in charge, just like the dogs, or they have Often, a different relationship? Yeah, the man, the man driving a dog team is sometimes the biggest dog himself, refers to how much, how much work it can be to drive a, dog, drive a dog team. There are times when you're going cross country where you literally have to travel the ground two or three times for each time the dogs do. If the snow's too deep for the dogs to go through, you have to snowshoe out in front of the dogs mm -hmm. for a mile or more perhaps, yeah. then snowshoe back where the dogs are, mm -hmm. get the dogs and then travel what you just broke with snowshoes. So you've mm -hmm. covered it three times, the dogs have covered it once. How do you keep the dogs in position? The do keeping the dogs in position has a lot to do with their training. Uh, the, the, the simplest way to describe it is that it's one of the reasons lead dogs are so important. You have the lead dog at the front of the team that's mm -hmm. trained to keep the dogs lined out, keeping the, the ropes, the lines taut, and you have the driver at the back of the team that has a brake on the sled that 
works as well to accomplish the same thing. Mm -hmm. So th the dogs in the middle can't really get too tangled as long as either either end is doing their job. Mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of a lot of it is training. You know, before you start running a big long dog to st string of dogs, you work spend a lot of time working with smaller teams. Uh, three dog teams, four dog teams, five dog teams. And as your confidence as a driver builds up, as the skill of the various dogs that you might be using as leaders increases, and then you can increase the number of dogs and increase the complexity of the situations you put them through. What is the work that you do when you work with the three, five, and seven dog teams? Everything we do here is, is training and conditioning. Training is always going on. Conditioning, improving the dog's condition is always going on as well. Uh, in addition to that, uh, the dogs are used in the wilderness part of Denali National Park and Preserve. The, uh, what was the originally Mount McKinley National Park is now a designated wilderness area. So we right. use the dogs for ground transportation, for everything from assisting with research to hauling supplies to backcountry cabins to keeping trails open for winter visitors, uh, doing wildlife observations and making contact uh, with park neighbors and other people that might be recreating in the park. Gary, what, what is a sled dog? How is it different from other dogs? Uh, the dogs that we have here are dogs that are native to Alaska. There's been dogs in Alaska probably at least 10,000 years, maybe longer, mm -hmm. probably pulling sleds at least 2,000 years. They're dogs that are very much adapted to working in cold weather. Uh, they, they have a strong natural desire to pull. They're very well adapted. They have a two-layer coat. They have a longer outer guard hairs and a real dense under woolly coat. They have uh, counter current circulation in their legs that allow their feet to operate at just above, just above freezing. They don't waste a lot of heat by pumping into their feet. When you say counter current circulation, what do you mean? What it means is that the arteries going into their extremities run parallel to the veins coming back from their extremities and the mm -hmm. heat is exchanged mm -hmm. so that warm blood is not going down into the bottoms of their feet where it mm -hmm. makes contact with the snow. Mm -hmm. uh, they, their feet have a pad of uh, fat, a fat cell that remains soft and pliable even in cold mm -hmm. weather and so they, they can operate their feet at extreme cold temperatures. Mm -hmm. Human beings, if they start to get uh, calorie stressed, have a hard time keeping warm, will shut off the blood to their extremities, which is why yeah. we can get frostbite. Dogs do not do that. Uh, sled dogs mm -hmm. do not do that. And when we talk about sled dogs, we're talking about Samoyeds, Siberian Huskies, Malamutes. None of which we have here. The dogs we have here are dogs that go back to dogs that have been in Alaska at least, at least 10,000 years, perhaps longer, we just breed sled dogs to sled dogs. Mm -hmm. During the gold rush days and since, lots of different dogs have been brought up here. A lot of the dogs that were brought up here were, did not survive. The ones that did interbred with the native dogs. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, what you had was, at around the turn of the century, you had a sparsely populated area sparsely populated with people and groups of and dogs in isolated areas. During the gold rush days, all manner of dogs were brought up here, interbred with the native dogs. In a sense, there was a second natural selection process right. where those dogs were then again thinned out by the, uh, the harsh environment here. And so what we have now are just extremely fit, tough dogs that are capable of dealing with the environment that we have here, but they have a real broad genetic background. Uh, 
And a lot of people up right up to the present time have continued to bring other dogs up here and cross them with the native dogs as well. Once we get up there, we'll probably have to stay up there until the demo's over. If we want to move, we should maybe walk the other way. If you want to get out of here, if you want to come back and get the, the dogs barked. Well, right now we're walking along the um, area where you demonstrate how the dogs work. How does that process work? I mean, we're, you obviously have a lot of visitors here. Yeah, they, they, our sled dog demonstrations are our most popular interpretive program. Last year we had uh, 41,000 people attend our sled dog demonstrations. Mm -hmm. The demonstration we do is what we call a living history demonstration. In this case, it's the dogs that are in costume. Uh, we use historic sleds and uh, historic leather uh, harness, harnesses for the dogs. The, uh, the presentation is prim primarily on the history of the dog's use, both as how it affected the establishment of Mount McKinley National Park, now Denali National mm -hmm. Park, and its importance in the history of Alaska by use by the native people as well as by the early settlers, prospectors, missionaries, explorers. Well, tell us uh, about some of those issues, particularly the, the importance of the dogs to uh, uh, Alaska. Uh, judge, judge Wickersham, uh, who is the first territorial judge, uh, had a comment that anyone familiar, anyone that gave any time to the study of the history of Alaska would recognize that next to man, dogs were the most important factor in its current uh, state and development. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's winter here eight, in the interior of Alaska, eight months of the year. Uh, it's much easier to travel through much, much of interior Alaska in the wintertime than in the summertime. Yeah. People, of course, traveled on the big rivers by steamship, but when those rivers froze, they became highways for use by dog teams. Mm -hmm. Uh, at the turn of the century, the military came in and constructed trails such as the Iditarod Trail and others, the Valdez to Fairbanks Trail and others that were uh, primarily dog sled trails in the wintertime. Uh, a lot of areas that might be boggy, rivers that would be difficult to cross, certainly fly-infested, mosquito-infested areas, you come back, uh, real brushy areas, you come back in the wintertime when those bogs are frozen and there's a layer of mm -hmm. snow over them. Once you establish a trail, you can use that over and over and travel those areas quite well. Dog, dog teams can be a fairly efficient mode of traveling. It's, it's not uncommon for us hauling heavy loads to travel 30 to 50 miles in a day. In a race like the Iditarod, they're traveling over 100 miles a day. Mm -hmm. For uh, uh, ground-based travel, that's not, not too bad, and that's right. even in this day and age. Well, when you take the dogs back up into Denali Park in the wintertime to mm -hmm. patrol, uh, how long are you out for? It varies. Uh, in the early winter, they have to get back in shape just like any other athlete would that's had the summer off. But by the time, uh, as the days are short, our runs are short, in November, December, we're only getting about four hours of daylight. We use that time to get the dogs in shape. Starting in about mid-February, the days are getting longer where you can actually do something with them and we'll start doing more extended patrols. The longest I was out last winter was two weeks. Uh, we did have uh, two park staff stationed out at the Wonder Lake Ranger Station, which is yeah. about 100 miles out into the park, out for six weeks last spring. And do they get out by dog sled? They went out by dog sled, used dog sled transportation uh, to make contact primarily with uh, 
early uh, season mountaineers, uh, cross-country skiers. There is an airstrip out there. Mm -hmm. There's also Cantishna is just outside the uh, wilderness part of the park, and there is a snow machine route into the, the mining town of Cantishna that mm -hmm. people use. When you patrol the park in the wintertime, mm -hmm. what do you look for? What is the patrol? The, the patrols serve a variety of functions, not the least of which is just to be familiar with conditions and keep trails open in the park. If you were mm -hmm. planting, planning a uh, ski trip into the park or planning to come here with your own dog team, you'd want to be able to talk to someone that could tell you what conditions were like in the park. So some of it is just real basic uh, condition status. We also like to try and keep trails open to various parts in the park. We'll do wildlife observations, uh, often providing transportation for researchers that are studying some of the animals in the park. This last winter, I spent a week with uh, Carol McIntyre, who's a raptor biologist. The eagles uh, come back and do their nest selection in early March. She wanted to travel out to various points to check, to see, watch the, uh, the, the nest selection process. Also, there is apparently some competition between golden eagles and jeer falcons, falcons over nest sites. So she wanted to see if she could observe any of those interactions. So we spent a week calling her around. We've uh, hauled moose researchers and others out to different parts to, to, for wildlife observations. We'll also regularly report uh, there's been a lot of interest in the wolf packs in Denali and where they might be. There, most of that research is done from the air, but often being on the ground, we can see uh, tracks, old kill sites, and that kind of thing that might be hard to see from the air. And so we'll mm -hmm. keep uh, reports going on the wolf activity in different parts of the park. When you put a dog team together, mm -hmm. how do you select the dogs? The well, social interaction among the... Among a, a, lot, a lot of putting a dog team together is is done long before you actually have the dogs. That is to say, we spend a lot of time selecting which dogs we're going to use for breeding. Uh, when we select dogs for breeding, we'll uh, look at their litter mates, their parents, their grandparents, their brothers and sisters. If they've had other litters or other dog mushers have had relatives of theirs, we'll contact them. So when you when you breed uh, a sled dog you can be pretty sure that the dogs that you, that you get, the puppies that are mm -hmm. born, will have the strong instinct to want to pull. And for us, it's also real important that the dogs are friendly and social, not only with each other, but with, with the public. And so just, just by being careful in our breeding program, we're sure, fairly confident that we're going to have friendly, social, hardworking dogs. Then when you actually put dogs together, each dog's an individual. Some of them have strengths, different strengths and weaknesses. Some of them are more comfortable at the, towards the front of the team. Others, they're nervous if there's a lot of dogs behind them, so they're more comfortable at the back of the team. Uh, the lead dog, of course, is the uh, most highly trained position. Uh, it's the one that you depend on most, uh, not only your steering wheel, but also your, your uh, gas pedal. Also, mm -hmm. to a large extent, uh, your memory. Uh, they, the dogs have an incredible memory for routes, places they've camped in the past. Most of our older lead dogs know where our patrol cabins are and will take you to them. They're also good at, if, it, if you've established a trail and then had a drift in or fresh snow on top of it, they will refine that trail and can take you for miles. A lot of, a lot of our uh, older lead dogs will remember the routes we travel several hundred miles in different directions. Uh, and so you're really reliant on them. And so putting a dog team together is not a haphazard thing. And it involves a real close, intimate knowledge 
and understanding between the person driving the dog team and the dogs themselves. And the driver has to know the dogs well enough to know where to put them, when they're uncomfortable, when they need a break, all those kind mm -hmm. of things. So it's, it's a very much interactive things and it's definitely a mutual dependence. You know, the dogs are dependent on you, but you're just as dependent on the dogs. I want to take a moment and say that we're talking with Gary Coy, who is the director of the sled dog program at Denali National Park in Alaska. And we're talking with him uh, near the dog kennels. Uh, and we'll hear the dogs in just a moment. You're listening to Radio Curious. My name is Barry Vogel. Gary, um, the, I'm interested in how you choose that lead dog and how you know when the lead dog knows that they're in the right place, that they're following the trail. Okay, so selecting a lead dog is, is a mutual thing as well. Sometimes the lead dog selects you. A, a lead dog is a real specialized position. They're the only dog in your team that doesn't have another dog to follow. That means mm -hmm. that that dog has to be fairly independent, has to have a lot of drive, has to have uh, what we call a strong head. It can't be easily frustrated or confused. On the other hand, the lead dog has to be very responsive to, to commands and has to be willing to take commands mm -hmm. often going places where it might not want to go. If you, yeah. where it might, and so it's a delicate balance between a dog that's independent with a lot of drive, but at the same time is responsive and easily trainable. Is there something that you see in puppies that are indicators that that would be a lead dog? When you look at puppies, you can, especially when you have a group of puppies together, you can often see a dog that's more intelligent than others. They, they're quicker to learn their names. They're quicker, you know, there'll be one dog that might be a little bit quicker to sneak out, how to figure out how to sneak out of the puppy pen. Mm -hmm. uh, but that intelligence isn't all that it takes to be a lead dog. Uh, just being smart isn't enough. They also need that drive and they a real strong work ethic. And so I often don't even consider giving dogs uh, lead dog training until they've shown me not only intelligence, but that they also have a strong work ethic. And that means that they have to have spent a year or two in harness. So it's, they're mm -hmm. usually about three years old before I start to uh, think about giving them lead training. Being a leader, like for humans, is a stressful position. You can make a lot of mistakes. You can get corrected often. So it's real critical when you're working with a lead dog. You need to correct the mistakes, but you have to make sure that you reward every time they do something right. And those rewards have to outweigh the, uh, the corrections. Yeah, yeah. Do dogs move up into the lead dog position? They can, yeah. A good, a good place to train a, a young leader is if you think you have a dog that has potential as a leader, you start moving them towards the front of the team. They, some dogs, again, aren't comfortable with dogs behind them. So you have to see, well, when they're at the front of the team, do they still have that drive? Mm -hmm. uh, then you can work them up into a position right behind the leader where most of the dogs are in front of them, where they can see what the leader's doing. And they, they'll often, you can tell, they will learn commands just by hearing the vocal commands to the leader mm -hmm. and watching what the lead dog does. If they continue to do well as you move them towards the front, then you might run them in double lead with the experienced lead dogs, run with two lead dogs right next mm -hmm. to an experienced leader, and they'll learn a whole lot from that other dog. For, for, to a large extent, I use the older dogs to train the younger dogs. The, the dogs communicate with each other much better than I can communicate with them. Yeah. So I use dogs to train dogs, and all I really do is try and set up situations where the young dogs can learn from the, from the older dogs. 
Give us an idea of what some of the commands are like when you're... Uh, they, they know a variety of commands. Basic, the basic commands are G to the right, haw to the left, woe to stop, straight ahead to go straight ahead. Uh, we have a, a rear uh, turnaround command, come G or come haw, which means 180 degree turn. Mm -hmm. But for what we do here, we do a lot of cross-country travel. For instance, if we're traveling down a creek, we might be winding our way around open holes in the ice, brush, rock. And so you literally might be, for example, talking to your lead dog th through a route. You might be going, G, G, haw, haw, G, G, haw, straight ahead, right there, okay, G, continually. If you're on an established trail, you might go for hours without giving a command. How quick are they to respond to G, G? Varies with the lead dog. Uh, our best trail-breaking lead dogs, the, the the response is instantaneous, uh, sometimes almost before you say it. Again, they can read, they learn they to read the trail as yeah. well. Yeah. They know that you're not going to run them through the brush. <laughs> what kind of care and maintenance do these dogs need when they're here in the kennels and then when they're out in the, out in the bush? The, the, the dogs are athletes and like, like human athletes, they need top quality food. Uh, they're also expected to perform at extreme temperatures. Uh, it's not unusual for us to be out with our dogs at 20, 30, even 40 below zero. Mm -hmm. And so nutrition's a real critical factor. Nutrition and to be sure they have enough water are, are really critical. Uh, we, a lot of attention is given to that kind of care. On the when, when, yeah, when you're out on the trail? When you're out on the trail, the uh, you, a dog team travels on its feet. And so you spend yeah. a, almost every time you stop, you'll check the dog's feet. Sometimes they'll get little ice crystals forming between their toes. You'll clean those out. If they do develop any sores or abrasions on their feet, we have little booties we put on them. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that, that's a constant care. Uh, they're, the sled dogs in particular are really durable animals. They don't have anything like hip dysplasia or, uh, or problems that are more common with some of the purebred dogs. They are subject to some athletic injuries. They occasionally get muscle pulls or sprains or things like that. Mm -hmm. And so you have, we do travel with a uh, complete canine first aid kit. I traveled out into the park a few years ago with with our North District Ranger who was in charge of medical emergency medical services here in the park. He cut his finger and opened the first aid kit in the uh, in the dog sled and everything in there was canine first aid. We didn't uh -huh. even have a band-aid in there. Uh -huh. We do now, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> he yeah. changed he he offered that suggestion. But uh, uh everything we do is uh geared around the dog mm -hmm. dog health care. Do you encounter um wild animals when you're out there? We encounter wildlife quite often. You know, Denali is known as a wildlife park. I think if people came back here in January when there's only uh, four hours of daylight and it's uh, 30, 40 below, they, they would be amazed that there's anything living here at all. Mm -hmm. In the winter, we definitely see much less wildlife. Of course, a lot of things uh, migrate out of here. Uh, animals like bears and ground squirrels hibernate. Uh, but there are the, the moose become fairly inactive. They're real conservative in how they use their energy. And so we don't encounter lots of wildlife, but it, it is out there. And the dogs are a real low impact on the wildlife. They, uh, uh, it's not unusual for everything from moose to uh, wolves to just watch us go by. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, have, have you had occasions when uh, you've, a dog has not been able to continue when you're out there? I, what do you okay, occasionally we, we've had uh, a couple injuries. One of the things about traveling with a dog team, if you're traveling with a nine dog team, you have nine engines. 
Yeah. And uh, there has it's fairly rare, but on occasions I've had to uh, put a dog in the sled and transport it that way. I, I did have a dog that had a, uh, it's called a gastric dilatation, a bloating mm -hmm. problem, and it was unable to run, so I had to transport him. Bring him back, give him a ride back. Give him a ride Will back. Will I let you do that with their strong instinct to pull and run? It's real difficult. We actually carry a little a restraining bag that we can, mm -hmm. that has little D-rings on it that we can clip into the sled to keep the dogs. Mm -hmm. They know they hate being in the sled. Yeah. Uh, for minor injuries, I mentioned dogs occasionally getting sprained. Uh, what we'll often do is just take them out of harness and let them run loose with the team. Mm -hmm. And how long have you been doing this? I've been working with the sled dogs here in Denali for nine years. Mm -hmm. The first uh, four winters I was here as a volunteer. Uh, worked here during the summer at the backcountry desk and doing dog demonstrations. And then uh, about five years ago was hired here year-round to work mm -hmm. with dogs. My main job is to train dogs and to train different park staff to use the dogs. Do the other men and women who work here with you have specific training in uh, dogs or dog behavior? They do. I, I give it to them. Uh, a lot of the rangers that come here have worked with horses and so they have a background of working with animals and they know that uh, things can go wrong. You know, mm -hmm. it, you know, it's not Rin Tin Tin or Lassie. It's their dogs are dogs and you don't want to expect too much from them sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, but my part of my job, I, I give all the uh, staff that's going to be working with the dogs a training course and they go through uh, a, a day or so of just of lecture more or less and then working with the dogs and we'll gradually work them up starting with small teams and then the bigger teams until they're more comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. What are some of the uh, unusual circumstances you've had with the visitors who come to watch? Oh, I, I think, you know, a lot of visitors that come to see our demonstrations, they, they sort of, some of them, they're only uh, exposure to dog, sled dogs is through Jack London and they're surprised mm -hmm. at how friendly and social our dogs are. Others, their exposure might be through racing and they're surprised that there are other kinds of dogs other than racing dogs. They find our dogs to be much bigger and uh, taller than they'd be. I think mm -hmm. uh, the, probably the other thing is that the notion that these dogs go back that are not purebred dogs or crosses of purebred dogs, it's I think a lot of people believe that the uh, world sort of started out with purebred dogs that we crossed to get mutts rather than, in fact, it was the other way around. There was a general population of dogs from which purebred dogs were isolated. Well, Gary, uh, before we go up and listen to the dogs, I, I want to thank you for joining us here on Radio Curious. And I'd like to ask you the question I ask all my guests at the end of a program. And that is, could you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? Okay. Uh, actually, I will give you the name of a related book. Uh, it's called Dog Puncher on the Yukon. It's uh -huh. written, I believe, in the uh, 1920s by Arthur Walden. And uh, the interesting thing about Arthur Walden is that he was actually in Alaska freighting, uh, freighting goods and materials by dog sled prior to the Yukon Gold Rush. And he has, writes a real interesting perspective on that. And he incidentally went on to be uh, a dog handler for uh, Perry in the south, in Antarctica. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, Gary Coy, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. My pleasure. <laughs> Gary Coy was, in 1996, the project director of the breeding, training, and leadership program for sled dogs in Denali National Park. The book that he recommends is A Dog Puncher on the Yukon by Arthur Walden. 
Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.